And my message today is the end of the world and the end of the road, which seems very appropriate when you're ending a teaching series, all right? So let's get right after it. Starting with the end of the world, this is out of Luke chapter 21. I'm going to skip around just over a few verses. Then he, being Jesus, said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will seize you and persecute you. Yay! Want to sign up for being a Christian? That's what's going on. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. That's how the message gets out. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. So this is really fun stuff to read, isn't it? But not a hair of your head will perish. You at the core of you will be fine. Stand firm, and you will win life. Now we're going to skip down a little bit. Verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea, a tumultuous time. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all of the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Wow, reading those verses, I don't know about you, but it doesn't exactly fill you with warm fuzzies, does it? This section of scripture is what many people would call apocalyptic, end of the world, doomsday kind of stuff. The Bible has several sections like this, most famously parts of the book of Daniel and the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. When most people read these sections, they are instantly, and some of you might have felt this this morning, filled with dread. That's what happens when you read apocalyptic sections of Scripture. You even start to wonder, why is that in the Bible? Hollywood doesn't help us here, does it? When you watch apocalyptic movies, it's about awful things like zombies taking over and worldwide epidemics or a meteor crashing into the face of the earth and destroying humanity as we know it. Or that fateful day when the animals start to fight back. Who needs opposable thumbs, okay? It's always scary stuff like that, but not as scary as some of the apocalyptic teachings that are floating around out there. And you've heard them. You know the ones. The ones in which God is portrayed as finally being fed up. He finally runs out of love and mercy and patience, and so he shows up on planet Earth in a fit of rage, and he takes a couple of lucky, perfect people to heaven with him, but the rest of the people, the rest of us, he turns into grease spots on the carpet. As a kid, those kind of teachings made me so afraid. I was so afraid of being a grease spot. I prayed to invite Jesus into my heart 37, 38 times, somewhere around there, because I just wanted to make sure that I had it right. I was terrified I was going to miss out and become a grease spot. And the whole while I was praying, oh, Jesus, please don't come back before I get to have sex, though, and, and see Australia. 
in that order, thank you very much, okay? It can all be just so dreadful, but I don't believe Jesus spoke these words to people to bum them out and fill them with dread. I don't believe that at all. So let me mention a few things about these verses that will bring us joy instead of dread. And the first word I want to highlight is unveiling. The word apocalypse is actually not a negative word. It literally means to unveil. So these verses should fill us with hope because a wonderful unveiling is taking place. And unveilings are always fun. Like when the latest smartphone gets unveiled on a stage at some tech conference, okay? Or the latest supercar gets unveiled and they pull the sheet off of it and you finally get to see it. Even babies being born are a form of unveiling, right? Because the kid is like covered up and hiding from us for nine months. And then the baby's born and what does everybody do? They rush over to the house or the hospital room because they want to see the baby. They want to participate in the unveiling, and then we lie, right? Because we say, oh, it's so cute. It's not cute, okay? It <laughs> looks like a bloody raisin, <laughs> all right? But at any rate, I'm losing my spot. Okay, so what is being unveiled in these verses? The answer is found in verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Jesus says. Now remember, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about a future destination that we arrive or walk into. He's talking about a present reality that we live. That's what Jesus is talking about, a reality in which people become aware of God and they start to walk in tune with God and God's ways, a reality in which things like corruption, violence, hatred, and evil don't win but love wins instead. Things are bad right now. You read the news. You watch TV. The world has a lot of problems and a lot of big problems. But some believers, I've noticed, respond to the badness in ways that just aren't helpful to themselves or anybody else. Some believers spend tens of thousands of dollars building and stocking and burying elaborate bunkers in their backyard. And their thinking is, well, if the world goes all Mad Max... I'm going to be prepared. Yeah, because that's fun to live like a gopher for the rest of your days, okay? And other believers bunker in a different way. They gather together in their socially and spiritually gated communities, thinking only about themselves and not about the people around them in complete denial of the pain that's around them. I call them Disney Christians because they're just focused on following their own bliss and happiness and not worried about the people that are struggling in the rest of the world. So things are bad. Things are bad right now, and they might get worse before they get better, but the good news out of these apocalyptic scriptures is this. Things will get better because the kingdom of God is near. Wrongs will be made right. Tears will be wiped away. Evil won't get to bat last because Jesus has unveiled this new reality, and now he invites us right now, not wait until the future, he invites us right now to live in this new reality. Heaven isn't about just hiding from the trouble until we eject out of here someday. Heaven is a here thing. Heaven is a now thing. Heaven is a new reality revealed. Our job isn't to get to heaven. Our job is to participate with Jesus in bringing heaven to earth. You know, in the 90s, there was a song by R.E.M. Remember the band R.E.M.? R.E.M., anybody? Yeah, baby. <laughs> okay. So they did this song called, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And I feel, I feel fine. A little fun fact, it was actually the theme song for the sitcom Friends for only the first episode, and then they changed it to a different one. But I remember hearing that song by that band, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine, and I thought, you're crazy. 
the end of the world is nothing to feel fine about. It's something to be scared about. It's something to feel dread about. You've got to pray that Jesus comes into your heart 37 times. You don't want to be a grease spot. I mean, I just thought it was all terrifying, okay? But now I look at that song and I think I'm completely different about it. I love the lyrics because it is the end of the world as we know it. Because Jesus has ushered in a new way of living, a completely different reality, and I feel fine about that. Second thing I want to highlight out of these verses is the word worry. Worry is absolutely lethal in our lives because it gets us to focus on the what if, which is imaginary, instead of the what is. And God doesn't dwell in the what if. He doesn't dwell in the imaginary. He dwells in the what is. He dwells in reality. I was reading a story, and I reread it again this week. For some reason, I just came across it again. And it's a story of this laid-back surfer dude, and he was teaching this really wealthy executive in Southern California how to surf. And the executive was freaking out. He just kept asking what-if questions. Well, what if the, the wave takes the board this way? Well, what if I get too far forward? Well, what if I, I move towards the back of the board? What if, what if, what if? And he was terrified. And finally, the laid-back surfer said this, this great piece of advice. Stop worrying about stuff that ain't happening. He didn't use the word stuff, so I blacked it. Aren't you proud of me? I didn't actually put it on the screen this time, okay? Stop worrying about stuff that ain't happening. That's not just good advice when you're surfing. It's great advice for our life because people worry all the time. I tend to be a worrier, and most of us worry about end-of-the-world stuff when we read apocalyptic scriptures. People come up to pastors like me all the time and say, are we living in the end times? Is the end of the world nigh? They want to know these things because they're freaking out about them. And my answer is always the same. I don't know. Nobody knows. Jesus says as much. Look at this verse out of Mark chapter 13. Pop this up. This is Jesus talking. Do we got this? Yeah. But about that day, about the end times, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus himself, the very Son of God, is is saying, when's the end of the world? (laughs) I don't know. That's a good thing, though, okay? That is actually a really good thing because instead of giving into the toxic effects of worry in our life, instead of focusing on things we can't control, we get to focus on what we can control, like taking better care of the planet, taking better care of people, hurting with the suffering, being more generous, giving more hugs, things like that. It's a good thing. When you think about it, ages and seasons and generation and worlds, so to speak, end all the time, but we don't despair because what we do with our lives right now will last into God's future. Did you hear me on that one? Every kind word you speak, every act of compassion that you do right now will echo into eternity and be a part of God's forever. Our lives right now matter. It's not just about going somewhere else someday. It's about what we do right now. So let's stop worrying about what if and instead focus on what is and get excited about that. And the last word out of this particular section is peace. Much of what Jesus says to the people in Luke chapter 21 when you study it is not really about the end of the world. It's actually about the end of their world. As I told you last week, you got to remember, these people Jesus was talking to, their land was being occupied by the Roman Empire, and the Romans were oppressing them and mistreating them greatly. Some of them thought the only way to deal with this problem of the Romans is through a violent, bloody revolt. 
we got to wipe out the Romans. That's what we got to do. Jesus knew in his great wisdom that wouldn't go well for them. And in fact, it didn't. Forty years after Jesus uttered these words, they tried that revolt and they got slaughtered and the city of Jerusalem got leveled. This chapter is Jesus warning them away from that and urging them into a better way of living, the way of love and peace instead of power and violence. And his words in chapter 21, read it for yourself, they're profoundly important for us in the year 2018 because just like the people that Jesus was talking to, many people in our culture, in our day and age, just don't get it. I was driving down um, over by campus, and this was a couple of years ago, and I was reading bumper stickers on a car. I love reading funny bumper stickers. I, I just think they're just modern forms of social poetry. I just love them. And on this one car, it was covered with bumper stickers, and on one side was a definitely Christian, churchy-type bumper stickers. It was a, the symbol of the fish and some words under that, so you're going, oh, a believer. On the opposite side of the bumper, I kid you not, was a bumper sticker that said, some people are alive simply because it's illegal to kill them. So, I love Jesus. I hate people, some people. And I'm going, we just don't get it. We think, just like the audience Jesus was talking to, violence is the answer, and it's not. And if we are not careful, just like the people Jesus was talking to, we will actually create our own apocalypse. Okay, because that's what happened to them. It won't necessarily be the end of the world, but it'll be the end of our world. We've got to stop believing that we can war our way to peace. That has never worked in all of history, and I'm a history buff, and it never will work. Think about World War I. It was billed as the war that will end all wars. Did it? No. You know what we got from World War I? World War II. Okay, that's what happens. Violence begets violence. Jesus is calling us to a better way of living. Evidently, when he said, love your enemies, he didn't mean love your friends and bomb your enemies. He meant love your enemies. So apocalyptic verses like this are cool, I think, because they show us three important things. A new reality is being unveiled. They show us Jesus who is calling us and leading us into the way of peace. And they get us to focus on, on the what now, not the what if. So don't be filled with dread when you read these. See the promises behind these scriptures. Okay? That's enough of the end of the world. Woohoo! Let's move to the end of the road. This is a story that ends the book of Luke, basically. And I skipped over the whole Easter stuff because I'm coming back to that. Well, for Easter. All right? Now, that same day, two of them, the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. This was after his death and resurrection. But they were kept from recognizing him. They didn't know who it was. And he asked them, hey, what are you talking about as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last days? So in other words, he's going, where have you been, buddy? Okay, because he doesn't know it's Jesus, which is just funny to me. What things, Jesus asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, not knowing they were talking to Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, well, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, they killed him. 
but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. It's been three days. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Now, you got to know, back then, very patriarchal society, when women gave testimony to things, people discounted it. They thought, oh, a woman saw Jesus and said this? Well, that means it's not true, okay? They weren't counted as worthy witnesses. It's shame on us, okay? They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Wow. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. So in other words, you're not really with it, okay? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Wow, I'm going to actually stop there. This story took place after Jesus died and rose from the grave. But the problem is a lot of people didn't realize he had been risen yet, that the grave couldn't hold him. So what he did is he came along and he beamed himself in where he just appeared in different rooms and with different peoples like he did with these disciples on the road, which must have been hilarious for him because it freaked the people out every time, every single time. Do you have ninja walkers in your life, okay, at your work or at your house, people that just naturally walk quietly? Say, I'm not. I clomp my way around the house. You can come into my house and just listen. You can tell which room I'm in because I'm a clomper, okay? But certain people are ninja walkers. You know some, right? You'll be at work on your computer looking at something, and you won't hear anything. You'll look up, and they're right there, okay? Jesus was like this spiritual ninja walker. He just appeared in situations before people even knew it. And let me mention a few things about this story of him ninja walking here that I want to point out. And the first is the state of mind of these disciples. It wasn't good. They were dejected. Verse 21 says, Their faces were downcast. This is a big duh moment in the Bible. Of course their faces were downcast. They just experienced this existential kick in the groin, so to speak. I mean, think about it. They had followed Jesus. They had loved Jesus. They had listened to him teach. They had seen him do amazing and miraculous things. They truly believed he was the one, the Messiah, the one who had came to the earth to make things right, not just in their lives, but in all the world. But then he died. Messiahs aren't supposed to do that. That was not part of the plan. So their hopes were dashed. Now they're heading back to Emmaus, away from the holy city of Jerusalem, which means they were heading back to their lives before they knew Jesus and after they had hope. In fact, verse 21 is one of the saddest phrases in the Bible. These three words were uttered, and I'll put them on the screen. The disciples said this, we had, had, past tense, hoped. That describes so many people I talk to, possibly even some of you. Well, I had hoped that this marriage would work out. Well, I had hoped I would know what I was doing with my life by this age. I had hoped 
that somebody would love me. I read an author the other day, and she said this about herself. My soul has a scar, and its name is forgotten. Oh my gosh, she's just searching for love. Some of you might feel that way. Or other people think, well, I had hoped my boss would actually recognize me, or I had hoped that I would be healed by now, but I'm still sick. And they, people that are in these situations think, I'm give up. I tried the whole Jesus thing. It didn't work. Now I'm going to head back to my life before Jesus and after hope. We've all been there. Some of you might be there right now, okay? But that's why this story is so great. Notice that only one of the disciples was named Cleopas. Theologians believe this is for a reason, that when Luke wrote down the account of this story, he left the other disciple unnamed on purpose so that when we read the story, we would place ourselves in the story. We're the unnamed disciple. Oh, I totally believe that, okay? This is our story. The story of how Jesus doesn't leave us in our hopeless state with this Eeyore outlook on life, okay? But instead, he hunts us down, he reaches down, and he pulls us up out of the caverns of hopelessness, and he does this the same way he did it for these disciples, by appearing, by showing up, by making us aware of his presence and causing us to see him and therefore see our future and the life through a completely different lens. And this story actually tells us some of the tools that Jesus uses to help us become aware of his presence. And the first one is the Bible. Jesus says, it says in the story that he explained the scripture to these two. He explained the Bible, at least the part of the Bible they had at the time. And their hearts burned within them. They got this like heavenly heartburn kind of thing going on. That's what happens when we read the Bible. When we read the Bible, we know, whoa, there's more to this. There's something deeper going on in my life. I'm not just reading another good book. One of my favorite pastors, his name's Dave Tomlinson, he's over in Europe, and he said this, if we look through it, talking about the Bible, if we look through it rather than at it, we may expect to glimpse the unimaginable wonder that we call God. Ah, that's so good. The Bible is not God. Some people try to make it. They like deify the Bible. The Bible's not God. It's great, but it's not God. God is much bigger than that. A text can't fully contain God. But the Bible is a tool that God uses all the time to help us collide in to the reality of his presence. And it's a good one. The second one is relationships. These two people were walking and talking together. They were in relationship. So often, God makes himself visible in our lives in relationship. Jesus is discovered in relationship. He even says this, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there also. He doesn't say where two or three of you are gathered doing Jesus-y stuff, I'll show up. No, he just says when you gather, I'm there. Jesus isn't just over us and in us and all around us. He's very much in between us. So expect this. I hope you can hear me. There'll be moments when you're having a simple moment with someone you love and suddenly you realize it's a sacred moment because it's not just you two or you three or you four. You're also in the presence of the God who is in between you, who is in all of those relationships. The best way I can put it is this. The God who is love will be discovered as we love in relationship. Thirdly, God is discovered through the tool of communion. 
We take communion here. We need to take it more often. I'll try to get on that, okay? And we take the bread and we take the juice and we're reminded of the body and blood of Jesus that were broken and poured out for the healing of the world. Communion is way more powerful than we realize. There's a pastor, her name's Sarah Miles, and she pastors a church in the Bay Area, just on the South Bay Area, and she's a wonderful author and pastor. I hope to visit her church next time I'm in the area. I'm just so amazed by her and impressed by her. And she tells a story in one of her writings of how she became a Jesus follower, and she grew up an atheist her whole life. And she said, I'm walking down the street one day, and I just I see a church that's open, and they're having a service, and for no reason that I can even figure out, I walked into the church. I didn't even know what I was doing. I had no desire to become a Christian, or she called it a religious freak, <laughs> okay? I had no desire to become one of those people, but I found myself in this church out of just like morbid curiosity of what was going on. She listened to the sermon and the worship song, stood up, sat down, prayed, all that kind of stuff, wasn't that impressed. And then they invited her to take communion. And she didn't even know why she did it. She just thought, oh, well, when in Rome, you know. And so she goes up and she takes communion and everything changed. She said, something terrifying happened to me. Jesus happened to me. And it was game over after that. She's followed Jesus ever since. Communion is so powerful. It's not just bread. It's not just juice. When we take communion, we are touching with our hand and tasting with our lips the very love of God. That's what happens in communion. No wonder these two disciples finally recognized Jesus when he broke bread with them. Something we do in communion. Okay? And lastly, the last tool that he uses that's mentioned in this is suffering. These two disciples were suffering. Hopelessness, if you've ever been there, wrestled with depression and hopelessness, it's a deep form of psychic suffering, and they were suffering, and Jesus shows up right in the middle of their pain. He always does that. We're going to celebrate Christmas real soon. In fact, there's already Christmas decorations out there. I saw them in stores the other day. I go, are you kidding me? We haven't even had Thanksgiving yet. we got to stop skipping holidays, okay? But Christmas is going to happen soon, and Christmas is basically the story of the Son of God squeezing himself into skin and squeezing out of a birth canal and coming into our world to scream alongside of us, to suffer with us, okay? Jesus is always present in the pain. I was reading an author. I've been reading a lot lately, okay? (laughs) Just let you know. I was reading this author, and it struck me because she has a condition called OI, or osteo... I want to read it. Osteogenesis imperfecta. And it just means her bones didn't develop normally. They're very brittle. She's not that old. She's actually younger than me in her 40s. And she's already broken over three dozen bones in her body, 36 times. Unfortunately, she had a child, and this condition was passed on to her daughter. She didn't know it would be. It was passed on to her daughter. And her daughter, by her teenage years, had already broken over a dozen bones in her body as well. And she still remembers the first time. And she tells about her two-year-old daughter walking across the floor, and she trips just on the edge of a book and falls down. It would be nothing. Two-year-olds do that 100 times a day. But she broke her femur because of her brittle bones. And her daughter was screaming, screaming. And her first instinct was to do something what every mother would do. She picked her. She don't really want to jostle people around that broke their femur, okay? And so her daughter's now 
sweating, crying, yelling at the top of her lungs. And finally, they, you know, got her to the hospital. They called, you know, 911. But she was explaining the agony she was in, she was in, not her daughter, to a friend. She was going, you don't know what it's like. It's one thing for me to suffer, but when your kid is suffering and you can't fix it, that's like one of the, the, the biggest hurts and pains in the world that anybody can experience. And her friend, instead of saying something stupid in Christianese, said this, I don't know what to say except that I believe Jesus was there on the living room floor with you as your daughter screamed. Thank you for those words. She goes, I don't know why, but those words helped me so much. Just to know Jesus was there helped me so much. I don't know why all the suffering takes place in our lives. Some of you have suffered greatly this last year. I don't know why. I can't figure it out, but I know this. In my darkest moments, in my hopelessness, in my soul-level pain, Jesus never shied away from me. People did sometimes, but Jesus never did. He showed up. That's what he did. These are just a few of the tools that Jesus will use to make us aware of his presence. There are gobs more, okay? But the point of this story is this. We will encounter him. He will appear. In fact, he already has. We just don't recognize it yet. Just like he appeared way before these disciples ever recognized him. Jesus has already appeared in our lives. We just have to see it. We just have to see it. I don't worry. He, we will recognize him, though. Jesus has skills on that. I was um, thinking about my least favorite sport, which despite how bad the Ducks played yesterday is not football, it's soccer. And I know some of you love soccer, and some of your kids or you play soccer, and I'm so happy for you that you can enjoy such a mind-numbingly dull activity, <laughs> but I can't stand soccer, okay? But I did see one soccer game that captured my attention, and I actually watched it because it was some high school students in Asia, I forgot what country, and they strapped binoculars to their head, but they strapped them in reverse, so they were looking through the big end, through the small end. So it made the soccer ball appear really far away, and all the people appear really far away, if even there at all, if they can even detect the ball at all. So I watched them play on this field, and there were boundaries for it, because they didn't even know where they're running. They're running into each other, and no, oh my gosh, it was hilarious. I thought, I could watch this soccer game all day, reverse binocular soccer. Try it, okay? I just thought, that's a great sport. And then I thought about that, and I thought, I think that's what Jesus feels like when he looks at us as believers. I think sometimes he watches us walk around and he goes, it's like you're wearing reverse spiritual binoculars and, and it's causing you to think that I'm way further away from you than I actually am if I'm even there at all. If I'm even there at all. And Jesus has skills. He'll come up and he'll rip those off. He's done it in my life. And he'll say to us, I'm right here. I've been here actually all along. I'm much closer than you think. See me. Just see me. Wake up. See me. And he can get you there. Ah, so great. Let's pray.